This is The Secret Library, a podcast about writing and publishing books. I'm Caroline Donahue, a life coach who works with writers, and I'm here to tell you this is your year. It's time to stop waiting and start writing. This is episode 94. I am so excited to have a really amazing guest and a really amazing book that we talk about this week. And before we get started with the interview, I wanted to continue our discussion along the lines of the uh, the candid novelist segment, which I've really been enjoying putting together for the past few episodes. So even though I'm still kind of simmering in some of the process that I talked about before, I thought about something I wanted to bring up this week because I have found it really helpful and it's a conversation that keeps coming up as I'm talking to other writers. So all the way back, uh, for those of you who've been listening for a long time, all the way back in the, the olden days, back in episode 38, a wonderful writer named V.E. Schwab came on the show. And this is an episode which I am constantly recommending to people to listen to because it's so encouraging. And one of the things that she talks about on this show and that she talks about in general, if you look at any of her presence online, is that the process of writing is not contained to the point when you're sitting at your desk and either scratching away in a notebook or banging away on the keyboard. She calls that phase typing, at least for her, because she's working on a, on a keyboard. But that all of the time and activity and, and thought process that you put into your book, even as you're going for a walk, even as you're grocery shopping, even as you're in the shower, all of these places where moments come through, all of that is writing too. It's not just the transcription of what you come up with or what appears in your mind and that you then have to record on a page. That's the transcribing process. But everything that happens around it is writing and you can't only type, you can't only transcribe. Um, it is impossible to do that all the time. I mean, anyone who's tried to write for more than a few hours a day knows that it gets, it gets hard after a while. You hit like a sweet spot and then there's a major fall off in the ability to... Um, to work productively. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about things I do alongside the writing. Um, Scott O'Connor, who's also been on the show and had a great conversation with him, talks a lot about in classes I've been in with him about the writing that you do alongside your main project. And that sometimes it's nice to take the pressure off of, I'm not writing the actual book. I'm exploring this thing alongside of it which sometimes can end up being a major plot point and sometimes doesn't. Sometimes it just deepens your understanding. And one of the things I really love to do um, when I'm feeling stuck or having a hard time is character development work. I like to get more and more into my characters because I find sometimes when I'm getting stuck and when I'm not moving forward and then everything's grinding to a halt, it's because I'm trying to force a character to do something that isn't believable or that doesn't make sense for them or that just it, it doesn't fit. There and they fight it because, you know, at a certain point, if you have good characters, they develop a certain amount of autonomy and they don't listen to you and they don't just go to this next phase in your nicely laid out plot because you said so. They, um, they need a reason to do it. And if the reason is inadequate, they won't go. So one of the things I really enjoy is taking personality tests online as if I were my characters. And this may sound a little nuts and it probably is, but 
it's something that I enjoy doing and I've found is really productive. There's one that is based on the Myers-Briggs types, um, you know, the INFP, INTJ, EFTJ, you know, all of those kind of types that you may have taken that test in high school. Um, and whether or not you believe that this defines you as a person is sort of irrelevant. What is the case is that the descriptions that you can get after the fact, once you have taken the test, um, are actually surprisingly thoughtful usually. And I will link in the show notes to my favorite site to do this with, but my hot tips for doing this are don't overthink it. Don't sit and agonize about it. I just kind of sit and say, okay, I'm this character in the book. And then I just answer the questions really quickly and instinctively, just sort of intuitively following what would that character say? How would they answer this question? Do they prefer this situation or that situation? And they're usually multiple choice and you can just click through it takes like five minutes. But then what you get at the end is this really interesting analysis of this is what this type of person is like in business with family, in a relationship, in relation to themselves. These are their hidden fears. These kinds of things can come up and reading through them is often sort of a mind blowing, like, wow, okay, that's why they're doing that. And you can find that hidden motivation when you're feeling a little stuck and they just don't want to go along with what you want um, or what you were hoping they would do. So I recommend trying that out. And then I will link to my favorite option. You can share any options that you have underneath the show notes post, which will be at secretlibrarypodcast.com. And let me know what you use as you're kind of writing alongside your story methods. What exercises do you do when you're stuck? What do you try and what has worked for you to play with um, when you're not feeling inspired to do the actual writing of the book, when that feels like it's a little hard? So with that said, let's get on to the interview and the rest of the show. My guest this week is Elaine Weiss. Elaine is an award-winning journalist and writer. Her magazine feature writing has been recognized with prizes from the Society of Professional Journalists, and her byline has appeared in The Atlantic, Harper's, The New York Times, Boston Globe, Philadelphia Inquirer, as well as reports and documentaries for National Public Radio and Voice of America. She has been a frequent correspondent for the Christian Science Monitor. Her long-form writing garnered a Pushcart Prize Editor's Choice Award, and she is a proud McDowell Colony Fellow. Her first book, Fruits of Victory, The Woman's Land Army in the Great War, was excerpted in Smithsonian Magazine online and featured on C-SPAN and public radio stations nationwide. Elaine holds a graduate degree from the Medill School of Journalism of Northwestern University. She's worked as a Washington correspondent, congressional aide and speechwriter, magazine editor, and university journalism instructor. She lives in Baltimore, Maryland, with her husband, Julian Krolik, a professor of astrophysics at Johns Hopkins, and they have two grown children. When she's not working at her desk, she can be found paddling her kayak in the Chesapeake Bay, and she votes in every election. This last point is particularly important, given that Elaine's latest book, The Woman's Hour, is all about the incredible lead up to the ratification of the 19th Amendment in the U.S. when women finally got the vote on the federal level. Um, I wish I could say that this book felt dated or not suspenseful or not engaging or that it was such a foregone conclusion reading this book that I wasn't biting my nails and kind of on the edge of my seat reading it. But as you can tell by my tone, that was absolutely not the case. <laughs> this book reads very suspensefully, even though I'm sitting in a time period 
you know, I was sitting in 2018 reading this book, knowing that I'll be able to vote in any election I want to in the U.S. Um, But there is so much importance, I think, in going back to history and finding out what got us here and the hard work that it took to make all of the tiny moves and pushes and and shoves to make that change happen. And it feels particularly um, poignant to me to record this bio on International Women's Day. So I will acknowledge when I'm recording it, which I usually don't, because it feels appropriate. And I think that Elaine's book is really a must read, not just for women in the US, but women everywhere who want to know about all of the struggles it's taken all of us to get to where we are now. And in many ways, how much further we still have to go. I think it's a, a brilliant book and it's not, it's not history as some people experience it, where it's just a list of facts. This really is a story that leaps off the page and feels incredibly alive. So it was really a privilege um, to get to speak to Elaine about her process, um, the inside research problem, um, how to get inside of the, the conundrum of how do I bring this story to life? Um, where do I get all the source material and and all of those little details. She was very generous in in sharing that story. And I just love talking to her. So I know you're going to enjoy listening to Elaine. And I, I really hope you run out and get this book after you finish listening, if you haven't gotten it already. So here we go with Elaine Weiss. Hi, Elaine. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. I have been really excited to talk to you about this book, which is a really meaty, exciting, big book that I've got. I'm like holding it in my hands as I'm talking to you. Um, And it's going to be even more beautiful in hardcover when everybody else gets their hands on it. So I guess the first question I have is, how long have you been working on this book? Because every detail feels so well thought out and considered. I just have to know what the timeline was for making this happen. That's always a writer's question. (laughs) I appreciate that. Um, I can tell you that from the beginning of, of working on the proposal, which entailed a great deal of the upfront research um, and writing and thinking about how the book could be structured and could be um, made into a dramatic read. Um, It was about four years. Um, two, Two of those years were the research and writing and One of those was the proposal writing and the initial research and the conceptual work. And then there's a year of editing and rewriting and then production. So I'd say a bit bit over four years. Uh, But the research and the writing, which really was done within a, I had a two year contract and I, I, I nailed it. Uh, I worked very hard. I did come in right on time. I'll, we can talk about what when I actually uh, did submit the manuscript. It was a rather um, uh, spooky moment. Um, Ooh. I'll tell you about that. But yeah, it was it was um, about four years with from proposal to production. That's amazing. 
I, I could see you spending 20 years on the level of detail oh, you, you provided in the yes, book. And, and one of the things I had to do was to say to myself, uh, okay, you got to stop. You could, you could go down this rabbit hole and it is fascinating and you can't do it. Um, in some cases I did do it and you don't see that in the book because my very wise editor <laughs> would say, that is a great story for your next book. <laughs> it's going out. <laughs> so there, there are things that were uh, in here in the book um, that are no longer there. And that's, that's the beauty and the science of of, of a great editor. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can imagine that there were, I mean, given all of the stories that are in the book that, I mean, I I think of one very early on when the story of, um, of course, now I'm blanking on her name, but the woman who was working against suffrage, sitting in the bathtub with cold water running over her feet, making phone calls all night as soon as she arrived in Nashville. I was fascinated. How, what kind of records were you diving into to find these details? Were they journals? Were they, I'm wondering where everyone is writing this down or where all of these things are recorded. Because one of the things for everyone listening is that it, it could, I could say, I mean, it, this is a topic I'm always going to want to pick up as a reader, but I can see it looking like an intimidating history book, but it really reads almost like a thriller in a sense. Like you're kind of gasping throughout the whole thing. Um, even knowing the result, as all of us know that we could, we all women listening know we can go and vote in the next election. Um, it makes you feel like, what if it doesn't happen as you're reading? So I was really interested in all of those details and how you found them and what kind of sources you were working with. Well, I can't tell you how happy you've made me to uh, uh, in saying that you almost forgot what happened because <laughs> that, that it did happen, that women do have the vote, because that, that was really my aim was uh, you're presented with this event and we know how it turns out. But how do you place the reader in the situation that the participants at the time were in, and they really didn't know. Uh, and it does come down to a very close, close call. Um, so I, I thank you. I really uh, uh, appreciate your, your recognizing uh, that part of, of how the book was written. In terms of the sources, uh, yeah, that wonderful scene of Josephine Pearson sitting in the bathtub. Uh, that's a good scene to unpack for your listeners. Uh, Josephine was a prolific writer. She was actually an academic um, who was against women uh, getting the vote. She was from Tennessee. She was a dean and a professor at small colleges in the South. And she comes home to take care of her elderly parents and to, to fight women's suffrage, as she calls it, the feminist peril. Um, <laughs> she, is, she is a very interesting, very well-educated woman who uh, really feels women should stay at home. Um, she wrote a memoir some years later in which she recounts this incident where she says that she um, was very hot. She took the cheapest room in the hotel because she's very frugal. And she uh, it was a beastly hot night in mid-July in Nashville, an unusual heat wave in Nashville. And she only way she could keep cool, this is in the days before air conditioning, she goes into a cold, um, a cold bath. 
uh, or shower. And in fact, one of the things, so I had this document, which I got from the Tennessee State Library and Archives, which has excellent records uh, of this of this um, ratification uh, event. And I went to the archives in Nashville and spent many hours there. I also bought the microfilm, which was great. Amazing. So I could take it home um, and spent many more hours. I think I spent an entire winter underground in the um, microfilm reading room of the Johns Hopkins University here in Baltimore, where I have, have access because my, my husband's a professor. And so I was able to, to get into the library and spend many um, head throbbing hours in a windowless, can... airless room. And for all those who have not done microfilm research since you were in school, uh, the technology has advanced slightly. You don't have to print on those horrible pieces of paper that would roll up uh, those shiny papers. Uh, you can actually put it on a flash drive. It's great. Otherwise, it's just... Oh, much better. Exactly. But it's the same in that it all shakes one way and then shakes the other and it doesn't quite center. Um, and so my eyes would be crossed after I came out of uh, a session in the microfilm room. But I had all this wonderful material on my flash drive, could bring it home and and read it and, and organize it. And so I had uh, Josephine's words, and she was a very colorful writer. So I I had that scene. I wanted to check whether the Hermitage Hotel actually had showers in 1920, or would have they would have been bathtubs, and found that yes, they a few rooms had showers, but most were bathtubs. Um, and so I felt confident. Uh, assuming her accuracy that she was in a bathtub. Um, so it really came down to, to, to very nitty gritty um, corroboration of, of the facts that she, that she wrote in, in this memoir. That's amazing. I loved as well the, the treatment of all of the different parties because I was sort of appalled. Um, as we discussed before we started recording, I went to an all girls school, K through 12, very pro women, you know, all kinds of women's history. And I was still kind of had no idea of the intricacies of the women's party versus the National Association of Women's Suffrage, you know, that there was these splits between them and Alice Paul versus Susan B. Anthony and, and how everybody was working sometimes together and that even the front that wanted to bring universal suffrage to women was divided in its own way. And I was shocked by how large the presence was of women who, like Ms. Pearson, who didn't want women to vote. Yes, this is a, I don't think, do not fault your education necessarily. It's not taught in, in history classes. Um, this is the largest single emancipation in American history uh, in, in terms of, uh, I shouldn't say emancipation, enfranchisement, pardon me, enfranchisement. Um, it is the largest enfranchisement. Half of the nation is enfranchised in you know, one uh, uh, adoption of 
a constitutional amendment. It should be part of our understanding of how our democracy evolves, and yet it's just been ignored. Um, I think we all have, and I put myself in that category. I studied American history and government in in college. I've worked in government. I I try to be a a, a good nonfiction reader, um, and I had no idea um, that it the women's suffrage movement was either this complicated, this important, or this relevant to to where we are today and how our politics has worked um, for the last 150 years. So the splits, uh, the different parties involved was one thing I did want to explain that it, we have an idea, and I, I, I think you'll agree that we've heard of Seneca Falls. We don't know exactly what Seneca Falls really was. It was something, it was some meeting. Uh, it was in upstate New York. We may get that far. And then we have in our mind that there were picket signs somewhere. We, a lot of people have Mary Poppins. A lot of people tell me, oh, yes, I saw that in Mary Poppins with Sister Suffragette. Um, yes, that was the British movement. And they worked in parallel with the American movement. They were very much in, in concert with each other, but, but different. Um, but then we see perhaps a few picket signs, which was the Alice Paul group, the Women's Party picketing. And then we have suffrage. And what went on in the 75 years between, we really have no idea. And so that's really what my first goal was to tell that story, to tell the story of these amazing grassroots activists who get together and see a wrong. They see a wrong being done to them. They have no rights. Uh, in the 1840s and 50s, at the time of, of Seneca Falls, women did not have the right to own property in America. It's really kind of shocking to remember what we didn't have. Uh, they could not, a married woman especially, could not own property in her own name. It was all her husband's. Even if she inherited property or money, she did not have the right to uh, control her own wages if she made money in any way. It was unusual, but women did work outside the home or in the home in piecework and things. Her salary was the possession of her husband. She did not have the right to testify in a court of law and could not uh, bring suit in a court of law in her own name. She could not have custody of her children if there was a divorce. Um, she could not serve on a jury. So she never had, women never had juries of their peers if they were in the criminal justice system. Um, you know, I can go on and on about what rights women didn't have. Uh, so at Seneca Falls, the, the call for the vote is only one of the resolutions. It's so fascinating to see what the other resolutions were, and those included equal pay for equal work. Are we there yet? Mm, I know. I saw that one and I was like, oh. Yes, yes. Uh, equal opportunity in the professions. Um, th they, they hit all of these things that we are still fighting for. So it's just so fascinating to see how far-sighted they were. Um, and yes, we have progressed and we have achieved many of those goals, but certainly not all of them. Um, so... The, the movement coalesces over a few decades, 
And there are splits in the movement. And that happens in almost every movement. We can't say that this is women being catty and and they kind of can't work with each other. That's not at all true. They work amazingly. There's incredible collaboration um, throughout the whole country. And remember, communication is not so easy. We don't have the internet. We don't even, we have the telephone towards the end of the movement. Uh, There's no radio there's, uh, it's only printed material. So it's amazing that they were able to organize the way they were. Um, but there is a split uh, in ways that will be familiar to anyone who studies uh, the civil rights movement, the labor movement, um, the first, the second wave of feminism. And that is there after uh, a, a social movement or reform movement has been trudging along for years, people get um, frustrated. You know, we see that today. They get frustrated. It's not going well. It's not going fast enough. They're not achieving what they hope to do. And so some want different tactics, more aggressive tactics. Um, some call that more militant tactics. I don't think militancy is really not, not a fair, you'll see the militant suffragists. That's not a fair um, depiction in Great Britain, there was violence. There was breaking windows, setting bombs. People really, there was a lot of property damage. In America, that was never the uh, the case. The most violent thing that the Women's Party suffragists did was uh, raise picket signs, light little bonfires, very contained on the sidewalk, and uh, chain themselves to the White House gates. That's about as militant as it was. So you see this a break in the suffrage movement, and it happened several times throughout the seventy-five years of the of the uh, existence of the movement. And I wanted to explain where these women came from. Why were they splitting? Why were they working towards the same goal and yet uh, at cross purposes in some ways? And I was given the gift that a writer can only appreciate, which is while reading the Nashville local papers. Uh, on microfilm, I could see that the papers announced the arrival of three women on the same night. And those become my three main characters. Um, So it's Carrie Catt, who is the president of the National Women's Suffrage Association, the largest mainstream suffrage organization in the country. And she's Susan B. Anthony's anointed heir. She's the one that Susan chose to be her uh, successor when she retired in 1900. And she is a very powerful politician in America at this time. In fact, internationally, because she is the president of the International Women's Suffrage Association. So she's a household word uh, around the, the world. She comes to Nashville reluctantly. She doesn't really want to come, but she realizes this is very important. She's going to have to direct the suffragists herself. Also on that hot uh, Saturday night in July um, comes a representative of Alice Paul, one of her young lieutenants named Sue Shelton White. And she's going to lead the more aggressive wing, the Women's Party wing, in their um, work for ratification of the 19th Amendment in Tennessee. And then at the same same evening comes Josephine Pearson from her home in 
southern Tennessee, and she's going to lead the anti-suffragists. So it was one of those gifts like, oh boy, they all arrived the same night. And I could use those characters to both personify the different factions of women who are in Tennessee. Uh, there are also men in Tennessee who are working for or against suffrage. Uh, but these are the, the women main characters. And then I can also, through them, especially through Carrie Catt, who who comes is the second generation out of after Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, I can bring the history of the movement in through her because she touches a lot of that. So um, I was given these gifts of these three women arriving and living in in the same hotel for six weeks. Um, and that becomes the framing device uh, to tell the story of what happens in the, the last ratification battle. That's amazing. I, I can't imagine how excited you were to have that discovery. Oh, yes. Few, few people here in Baltimore understood why I was um, standing up at my desk and going, yes, yes. <laughs> oh, I can only imagine. I want to take a moment and share a message from the sponsor of this week's episode, which felt just like a match made in heaven with Elaine Weiss and the Women's Hour. The Women's National Book Association has been around for 100 years and has been at the forefront and leading the way for women in the book and publishing industry. WNBA board members have just released the new book, Women in the Literary Landscape, which celebrates and highlights women's achievements in the literary world for the past 100 years. This wonderful book, written by three Women's National Book Association national board members and published by award-winning publisher CNR Press, covers the important history of women in writing, publishing, book selling, and librarianship. Women in the Literary Landscape breaks new ground with a narrative connecting women's contributions in these fields with a relevant social history. Celebrate women in literature and in the book world by getting your own copy of Women in the Literary Landscape today. You can check it out at secretlibrarypodcast.com slash landscape. That's secretlibrarypodcast.com slash landscape. So you'll have plenty of reading to inspire you along with the Women's Hour by Elaine Weiss. Now let's get back to the episode. And I think that I I think that it is true that you feel really the personality and the struggle of each of them. And I was really struck by how human they each were. And that was one of the things I really enjoyed about the book. I think that there's a tendency, particularly with figures like Susan B. Anthony, to kind of deify figures after a cause has sort of moved forward in history. But I really appreciated hearing some of Susan B. Anthony's and other people in the book's flaws, and which made the whole thing more believable. Like the struggles with, um, in particular, some of the more embarrassing choices that were made, you know, in terms of whether or not voting rights were going to apply just for all men at first, including African-American men and or if it was going to include women as well, and how the women responded when it looked like it was just going to be the men first, and they were going to have to fight further. And, you know, you think of Susan B. Anthony, I mean, she's on a piece of our currency, we've kind of deified her, but to see other sides of her character, I thought was fascinating, given the struggles that they were all facing, and, and they didn't always handle them so well. Yes, I'm, I'm glad you, you bring that up, because that was, again, one of, as a, as 
a writer of history. That was one of my goals was to make these, especially the women, I hope I do some similar things for the male characters, but especially these women who really devote good chunk of their lives to either achieving equal rights for women, political rights for women, or fighting it. And I wanted to make them human. I wanted to read the reader to understand them as women, as people, as citizens, as politicians, which they were. And so those, those little details, um, uh, some of them large details, like how they handled um, racial aspects of the fight, which are which is a major component of the suffrage uh, movement, how they handle that, and, and also just what they were like as people, um, what made them tick. And it was something actually that uh, both my, my agent and my editor asked me early on. She said, I want to know what made these women do this. Why would they devote their lives to this? Neither of the women who, who are my main characters um, are married or have children. Carrie Cat had been married twice. Um, at the time I write about her, she has a female partner. But why are they doing this? What makes them tick? And for each of them, there, there seems to be almost a childhood uh, event or uh, an event in their young adulthood that brings them to to the cause or the anti-cause. And so I wanted to, to flesh them out and to explain that they are not automatons. They're, they're people and they make mistakes and they make some wrong judgments and they're funny and they're vain. Um, there, was, there were some things, there were some personal anecdotes that I loved, but got taken out in the, in the final, final draft mm. book. Um, so, and again, my editor, who's a wonderful, uh, superbly talented and very wise editor said to me, you need to know what your characters had for breakfast, but we, you don't need to tell your readers all of that. You have to, understand <laughs> you have to understand them at that level, but you don't have to tell us. It'll come out in in how you handle them. And she was very right. So there, there are a couple of you know choice things which uh, um, I I loved and I thought showed um, these women in a more personal light. And much of that is there, but there are a few things there that are uh, uh, on the cutting room floor. But I think that it's important that we realize that our heroes and heroines are not saints. They are fallible and they are uh, flawed, but they have um, great, um, they want to do something that is great and they work towards it. And I think the thing I want to bring out is that these women were working for change um, or, or resisting change. And the important thing to realize is women's suffrage was not just a political movement. It was a cultural and moral and societal change, which was being debated over many decades. It was what we would call culture wars. It was a deep, uh, a, a, a more complicated change in how our politics and our society would be structured if women were given 
uh, the power of the vote. And so we have to understand it was it was ju- not just political, which made it much more controversial and made it much more um, emotionally uh, complicated uh, for the nation and for the the participants. So I wanted to bring all that out by showing you how they lived, how they uh, how they came to this moment. And um, I think that makes it a, a richer book. I didn't want this to be a history text, even though we need a history text uh, about this. I wanted this to be a story and a story of failure and triumph and challenge. And that's what um, change and making um, progress in democracy is all about, I think. One of the most heartbreaking things and and profound things, I mean, there are many of those in the book, obviously, given the topic, but there was a part where you you just boiled it down and said that many of the, the women who began the movement that ended with women gaining the vote didn't live to see it happen. And many of them, when it did happen, hadn't been born yet when it started. And I'm butchering the language a little bit, I'm sure. But that concept really struck home in terms of how long the process took from when they really started to work for it and actually saw a result. And there was something really profound for me about thinking about that and how quickly everything moves nowadays and how quickly we expect to see results and how long we're willing to stay invested in something when we have cell phones and text and we send an email and why haven't they written me back in three minutes? And that they really were able to hold on to this goal in some cases for their entire lifetime and beyond. I'm thinking of one woman who gave a speech, even though her doctor told her not to, because she had, I believe, the Spanish flu and went through and gave an impassioned speech and went home and died two days later, just knowing that that was so important to her. Yeah, I think you're you're absolutely right that 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 is something that struck me too, that these women were willing to give all. And, and this is, and, you know, today, many women uh, and many men are, are rising to a political awareness and political activism that they perhaps had not uh, entertained before. And the, uh, you you read about their frustration. It's been a year. It's been a year and we haven't accomplished anything. And you realize these women went on for 72 years and they were, they had no political representation. You know, they do this not only without the organizing and communications uh, tools that we have today, but they do it without having political representation. They don't have uh, a vote to to hold over uh, a legislator the way we do today. So you think of their persistence. Talk about she persisted. I mean, <laughs> these yes. are the originals. Um, and it's not that they're uh, sitting back. There, There is a period around the turn of the century that's called the doldrums when the movement seems to have lost its steam and nothing much is happening. But it, it does revive. It goes through some some of these um, cycles, which over 70 years you'd think it would. But the dedication that of these women uh, to the to the movement is just extraordinary. They travel more than anyone can imagine. 
And today we have road warriors who, for their for their business or for, for uh, their political careers, travel all over, and they're always on um, business class tr- planes and and nicely outfitted campaign buses. And these women were on rickety. Uh, railroad cars and they slept on hard slat seats and they slept in the railway stations and they boarded in flea infested boarding houses um, because a lot of hotels would not take women traveling alone. They go through enormous hardship um, for their dedication for the cause. And they are, most of these positions are not paid. So you had to either have a speaking career or have some other career to, to sustain you. And they truly are a model of what um, dedication really is and persistence. And they, I think one of the things that is a useful blueprint for us today is not only that they stick with it and they try not to be discouraged, but that they transform anger. And there's a lot of anger because they they have no political power. They are not considered full American citizens. They, t- they, they transform that and they supplement that anger with political knowledge and education. They learn to become masterful politicians. They're not just protesters, they're politicians. And they learn how to marshal public opinion, to push politicians and legislators to accept women as full citizens. And that's a huge change because, frankly, men are frightened of it. They're frightened that this is not only a change in the voting booth, that's enough of a kind of scary aspect. Uh, they're being asked to give away, to dilute their political power by half. But it's also, for many men, a social change. Women are going to wear the pants now. They're going to be um, out there. If they, if they go to the polling places, if they have political power, they may want to go to work. They may want to run the household. Um, There's all kinds of sexual um, um, anxieties that are expressed in anti-suffrage literature. You see a man hovering under his bed as his woman, um, his wife enters the room and and browbeats him. It's really quite remarkable to see the male anxiety come out. Uh, of the prospect of, of women getting the vote. So it's it's not just in the voting booth. It's going to be a change in society. And uh, that that certainly raises the stakes. And these women learn how to petition, to lobby. They have a very sophisticated lobbying operation with oppo research and card indexes for every legislator saying, uh, with information about who are their backers, what are their issues, what's their family like, who are their friends and their opponents. Uh, These women go in to lobby and they know a lot about the legislators they're meeting. They become, they know how to to work with the political parties at both the local, the state and the national level. They're pretty remarkably sophisticated politicians by the time uh, the ratification comes about in 1920. So 
the lesson for us is that protest is fine, anger is animating, but you've got to translate that into political leverage. Absolutely. I loved the description of the card index. That was fascinating to me. I I think I had sort of sci-fi visions of a giant card catalog with all kinds of things coming out of it because, you know, of course it has to be a physical object in that time period. There's no way, you know, they don't have, you know, a drop box that they can all keep it in. It's, it's you know, it's a physical thing. And and that was one of the the ironies that fascinated me the most about the whole process is that in like Josephine Pearson advocating so aggressively against women getting, you know, mired in the in the guts of politics, so to speak, that they become such sophisticated politicians. So they're they're even more mired in it in the because they're not able to vote than they perhaps would have been just by being allowed to vote and participate. It's like the fight to get in there has made them more political than it would have otherwise. Oh, absolutely. In fact, in New York, uh, New York women gained the vote by referendum um, in 1917. So there are states uh, in 1920 where women can vote um, because they have convinced their state legislators or or their male populist women that only the men can decide whether women deserve the vote in either the legislature or in a referendum, because only they can vote. But um, when New York women get the vote, 1917, the anti-suffrage organization changes its um, focus and now becomes the, um, I think it's called the Women Opposed to Voting Voting Association. (laughs) (laughs) That name is so amazing. Yeah, I, 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 I'm not uh, reciting it correctly, but it's it's something of that. This is the antis who are going to use the vote that they've been forced upon them uh, to punish, and, and their motto is to punish those legislators who forced uh, who foisted the vote on them. Um, so yes, the anti-suffragists become pretty sophisticated politicians themselves, and I think. Um, that for me, learning about the anti-suffragists was the most eye-opening aspect of my research because I had no idea that there was so strong a backlash to the suffrage movement within the ranks of women. These Absolutely. women, um, you can sort of understand how how men might um, be not sympathetic to the movement. Again, they're going to be diluting their power. They're afraid of the social and uh, political ramifications of giving women the vote. But for women to oppose giving their own sisters the vote seems totally counterintuitive. And so learning what animated the antis was a very, very important part of my research. Um, Finding out what were the issues that, that frightened them. Um, And there are religious conservatives who think that this whole idea of empowering women, giving them full rights, is against God's plan. God made Adam to be dominant over Eve. And anything else is um, really going against the Bible. And that is one of the arguments used and used right up until 1920. And maybe 
and it's still used today in certain aspects. So that's True. one. So you have you have the religious aspect and use of the Bible to justify it. Um, then you have the women who feel that the moral core of America will be somehow polluted if women move out of the home, what was called the women's sphere, which was all domestic things, that this is going to be a threat. Women going out of the home to vote, perhaps to work, because women are going into the workplace at this point in, in the 20th century, is all going to be the downfall of the American family. Now, any working woman, uh, any working mother, as, as I have been, has heard variations of that. Um, you know, you're, you're really endangering your family. It's, it's not as, um, I think, spoken aloud as it used to be, perhaps. I hope not. But certainly we've all heard aspects of that, that kind of argument. And the antis also um, were pretty smart in pointing out that the suffragists were promising too much. They were promising that women entering into political life would purify it. They would bring their moral, uh, their, their supposedly higher morals and delicate sensibilities to to politics, and it would be cleaner government. It would be better government. It would be um, more protection of women and children in legislation. And the antis are saying, "No way, no way. You're not going to be able to do that." Uh, in that sense, they were right. Um, right. <laughs> but that becomes. Uh, for some anti-suffragists, that becomes uh, an, uh, an argument. So finding out that where the social, the religious, and the political intertwine in these women is, is very interesting. And then, of course, comes the racial aspect. And that was perhaps the most important thing for me to wrestle with in the book and the hardest. Of because course. Yeah. Um, and it, it tells us a lot about where we are still today, because a lot of the opposition to giving women the vote is racial. To put it bluntly, there are both men and women and political parties and states who do not want black women to be able to get the vote. And one of the most difficult things for me to write um, was how the suffragists acquiesced to this in certain instances and were advocating for white women to get the vote and didn't care if black women didn't. And that is something that I cannot explain away and I wouldn't try, but I need to explain why they would think that was necessary at the time uh, without condoning it. So that was a very, um, I think, Meeting that head on was very important for me to do. And I think it's that racial aspect will be surprising to to some readers. Absolutely. I think it's I mean, I think hearing the complexity of the whole issue and how disempowered these groups felt and how desperate um was really moving and also, you know, horrifying what people will say when they feel desperate and like they don't have a choice. And 
in particular, um, Susan B. Anthony's very complicated relationship with Frederick Douglass and how, you know, they're friends and then she's willing to chuck, you know, black women under the bus um, in order to get women's vote. But then then they're friends again. You know, she's like, oh, I'm so sorry. But I mean, horrible things that she said in order to try to put the women's vote because she didn't want the, you know, the um, amendment to go through without women you know, to have it only color be considered and then not women. And then to, to just see how desperate they were and how horrible for them to resort to the tactics they did. Right. Uh, I mean, you're talking about what happens right after the civil war and right. with the um, introduction of the 14th and the 15th amendments, the reconstruction amendments, which gives citizenship and then voting rights to black men. And they, um, women um, suffragists who, who grow out of the abolition movement. So you have to understand these women have spent the last 20, 25 years being really out front advocates of abolition, which was a dangerous thing in America in, in the 1840s and 50s. And they're out there on the soapboxes, they're, um, they're, in, they're being attacked by mobs and they're standing up for uh, abolition of slavery, emancipation of, of black slaves. And they feel, and, and they are all um, advocating universal suffrage, suffrage for everyone, suffrage for black men, black women, white women. This is a democracy. We all have to have a voice. And so when at the end of the war, they're told, no, it is not the woman's hour. And this is where the title of my book comes. It is not the woman's hour. Uh, you have to wait. The nation cannot handle two great reforms at once. And it's it's a life and death issue for um, black men to be able to have political power, which, of course, is taken away from them very soon um, by by Jim Crow laws and, and all kinds of uh, ways of, of taking away their voting rights, which continued for another 60 years. But actually... I take that back, um, 80 years. So it's, um, it's a moment when the racial divide is, is most uh, evident. But what was fascinating to me is that that racial tension continues. Uh, and of course, it still continues, but it continues up to that time in, in 1920. And to, to be fair to Susan Anthony, um, she actually is, I think, of all the suffragists I've I've researched the most who truly believes in equality of the races. And she is willing to make moral compromises, um, which are not defensible, but in her life and in her speeches and in her work and in her personal relationships and in her political advocacy, she truly is uh, about as um free of racial prejudice as anyone uh, in the movement or of her time. So I want to give her some credit. She does certainly um, fall down in, in those years after the, the, um, the Reconstruction Amendments. But um, she, she really does advocate uh, for the vote for everyone. And the suffragists pay a price for that when they're in Nashville in a southern city. And the anti-suffragists actually use Susan Anthony as a kind of boogeyman and saying, remember, this movement grew out of abolition. 
the women who started it were abolitionists. And we should remember that they are they hate the South and all suffragists they paint um, are are again are advocate social and racial equality. And that is a danger to what they call Southern civilization. So that becomes a pretext of the fight in in Nashville, which makes it extremely complicated and extremely colorful at the same time. Absolutely. So I hope everyone sees from from our conversation just how complicated and suspenseful and sort of nail-biting in many ways the story is in the book. And I hope you will snatch it up because I think it's both an example of what you can do with historical research and that you don't have to sacrifice plot, suspense, character, all of these things in favor of just presenting facts. Um, I think it's a wonderful example of bringing the power of story to really illustrate all of the content that was in um, in the historical context. So thank you so much. Well, you're very welcome. And uh, again, being able to, to touch certain aspects of the research was very important to me. Um, so that I, I did go to the state house in Tennessee, and I counted the steps that the women would have to walk up uh, to the to the visitors gallery, and realized how steep they were, and how wearing a long dress was going to be very dangerous coming down. Um, and you know, just went to see the places that I was writing about, which some of which are are really look just the same as they did in 1920. And and also talk to as many people. All of my characters are dead, but I talked to some nephews, some grandchildren, um, and that made it, again, more real for me. And I could translate that to make it more real for my readers. So um, thank you for seeing the story in this history, because I tried very hard to to make it a readable story that um, you'll learn from, but you really should enjoy, first of all. Well, I think you've more than accomplished that goal. I would say it's more than readable. I would call it compulsively readable. Um, I was sneaking off, abandoning people um, to get back to it. So I'm I'm sure everyone else will be sucked in. And it's it's wonderful to hear about the behind the scenes that went into it, because I think it's it's an impressive effort to go into history, um, especially less recent history when it's harder to get the sort of in-person context you're talking about. And I think it really, really came through. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to The Secret Library Podcast. The show is produced by me, Caroline Donahue, and Frederick Barry McWilliams Jr., my tireless audio engineer. To get show notes for this episode and all other episodes, please visit secretlibrarypodcast.com. To get updates, literary love, and notification when new episodes are posted, sign up there for Footnotes, my newsletter. And to learn about life coaching with me to work on building your writing life, visit carolinedonahue.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Gold stars to everybody who leaves a rating and review on iTunes. We're so grateful. Until next time, happy reading.